Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, retelling the stories of the most compelling, the most controversial and the most sensational riders and races in cycling history. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilcos. Last time out, we swept back to a crazy day of wild wind and marvellous mayhem in the 2015 edition of Ghent Wevelgem, when Geraint Thomas was blown off his bike and Italian veteran Luca Paolini proved the strongest man on a day of blustery subplots. This time out, we're cutting loose with France's Jackie Durand, who defied all the odds by winning the 1992 Tour of Flanders with a break that lasted an astonishing 217 kilometres. Part of a four-man move, the 25-year-old became the first rider in Ronda history to win off the back of a long-distance break. And he remains, to this day, the last Frenchman to win the Cobbled Classic. A Frenchman winning the Tour of Flanders was inconceivable. People didn't even know there were French people in this race. Speaking to Eurosport almost two decades after he pulled off the impossible, Durand explained in 2011 just how he went about winning one of the biggest races of the season and of his career. He was part of a Castorama squad that had not even sent its A-listers to the race. Durand broke away with three other riders with 217 kilometres remaining, before eventually soloing clear of Thomas Wegmuller at the business end of the race. With the partisan home crowd silenced in disbelief, an ecstatic Durand came home 48 seconds clear of the Swiss to become only the third Frenchman to win in Flanders, after Louis saint in 1955 and Jean Forestier the following year. Durand would go on to cement something of a reputation for being a breakaway specialist of consummate Gallic pluck during his career. Edward Pickering, a biographer of the Tour of Flanders, says Durand's triumph that day was not merely the result of a jammy throw of the dice. It might have been one of the unlikeliest outcomes imaginable for the most important date in the Belgian cycling calendar, but Durand had a plan and executed it with panache. I don't think physically, pound for pound, Durand was a Tour of Flanders winner, says Pickering. I don't think he would have won it the traditional way, by fighting through, staying with the leaders and attacking the best classics riders in the world over the Muir or the Bosberg. His win came from putting himself out in the front, mastering the circumstances and having a bit of luck. He was never a contender, except for the year he won it. In his book, The Ronda, Pickering paints a picture of Durand as a man with a loud voice who laughs at his own jokes. Recalling a meeting with him from 2002 at a post-Tour de France criterium, Pickering writes, 
He flirted with the women, gave crushing handshakes to the men, and was the centre of attention, effortlessly. I was both appalled and impressed by his presence. Before causing the biggest Belgian upset since Eddie Merckx ordered frites without mayonnaise, Giron had hardly been pulling up trees. Entering his third season with Castorama, the relatively unknown Frenchman had one pro win to his name, the Grand Prix des Berg in 1991. Giron was under no illusions about the difficulty of winning a race like Flanders. In his maiden appearance in 1991, he'd given up at the second feed zone, leaving him to conclude that the Ronda was something inaccessible for a rider of his stature. The Tour of Flanders was not a race I dreamed of winning. I was just hoping to finish the race, Giron said in 2011. As much as finishing Milan-San Remo or even Paris-Roubaix seemed feasible to me, the Ronda seemed totally out of reach for someone like me. I'm not just saying that because I won it, but for me, it was the biggest and hardest race in the world, much harder than Roubaix. Such was the pitiful record for French riders and French teams in Flanders. Cyril Guimard, the manager of Castorama, who himself had finished third in the 1971 edition, sent a B team to Belgium that weekend. While Guimard and his star riders travelled to Brittany for the Grand Prix Rennes, a far more prestigious and realistic prospect for the team sponsor, Jerome was part of a team sent to be Flanders' fodder as punishment. You don't win a race like the Ronda by getting in a break. At least, that's the general consensus. It's a bloody hard race to win, confirms Pickering. And when you look at the list of winners, they are all, with no exception, absolute thoroughbreds. They're the hardest, toughest, classiest, best classics riders that there are, except Durand. Over the succession of cobbled bergs and sections of crude parve, the Ronda is a drawn-out slugfest, a battle of attrition that whittles down the group of contenders until the strongest prevails, as was arguably the case in 2019 when outsider Alberto Bettiol zipped clear on the Eau de Quaramont 14 kilometres from the finish. There are no winners who can be classified as luckier in the whole history of the race as Durand. Pickering says. Apart from the fact that it's very tough, that's because it's also a very important race for the Belgians. It's their big event. The big Belgian riders who specialise in this race all focus on it and don't allow these things to happen. Durand sticks out on the Palmares like a sore thumb. Going on the attack was a tactic Durand employed for most of his career. So much so that L'Equipe's Velo magazine ran a monthly Jackie meter to log the kilometres ridden at the head of races on long-range, often fruitless breaks during the course of the season. One year, it hit 2,270 kilometres. Besides delivering him a few famous wins, this famous combativity above all made Durand stand out in a way his talent never could. Durand was, says Pickering, the archetypal breakaway specialist, a precursor to the likes of Jens Voigt and Thomas de Ghent, perhaps even the original king of the suicidal attack. Jerome was the first to make a career out of it, says Pickering. This was his USP. He was the guy who got into crazy long breaks. I think he realised full well that, with his physical gifts, talents and capacities, he wasn't going to get the fame and notoriety he wanted by winning races through brute force in the same way that the classic specialists all could. By being the breakaway guy... Dudu was ensured that he was invited on the lucrative post-tour criterium circuit and opened up many a money-making opportunity. There was certainly, says Pickering, a method behind his madness in terms of these long breaks. Duron himself put it differently. He hated the idea of riders finishing the tour without having attacked once, maybe the whole of the season, even the whole of their career. I would rather finish shattered and last and having attacked a hundred times than finish 25th without really having tried. 
He who wins the Tour of Flanders tends to play a waiting game, the rules of which favour endurance over rash impetuousness. But in the 76th edition of the Ronda, Durand played by his own rulebook. After narrowly avoiding missing the start of the race following a mishap with ill-fitting cleats, Durand survived the first frantic hour before darting clear of the peloton 40 kilometres into the 257-kilometre race. He was quickly joined by two Belgian journeymen, Patrick Rowland of the tiny Azure team and Irv Maivish of Carrera, as well as the experienced Swiss breakaway artist Thomas Wegmuller. Wegmuller's presence in the quartet was key. A Festina teammate of Sean Kelly, the 31-year-old was a strong classics rider who had finished runner-up in Roubaix four years earlier and seventh in 1990. With Kelly in the World Cup leader's jersey after his second Milan-San Remo triumph a fortnight earlier, Wegmuller's role that day was to pave the way for what would probably be the Irishman's last chance of winning the one monument that eluded him. If having a strongman like Wegmuller in the break exonerated Festina from the burden of having to chase, it was not long before the Panasonic and Buchler teams of co-favourites Maurizio Fondriest and Edvig van Hoydonk grew tired of doing the dirty work. Kelly remembers that day well. Wegmuller was one of those riders who, when he made the breakaway, was just super strong, he says. He would ride all day on the front and never seemed to tire. He was a big part of that breakaway surviving with Jackie. I said to the Festina director sportif a number of times when he came back to the peloton, just tell him not to ride too hard because the race would be won at the end. But Wegmuller just kept on riding and riding. We wanted to calm him, but he wanted to push on. For that reason, we were behind and I couldn't use my teammates to try and chase because we had a man in front. For his part, the man who instigated the move wasn't thinking about winning as much as he was mere survival. When I attacked, it was clearly not to win. I just wanted to finish, Giron later explained. My plan at the time was to avoid passing the Oudequaramont with the whole peloton. I wanted to get over with a little gap, say five or six minutes. As it happened, Giron and his fellow escapees had a whopping 15 minutes when the race passed over the Oudequaramont, down from a maximum gap of 22 minutes at the first cobbled climb, the Tiesenberg. According to Van Hoydonk, Wegmuller was the primary concern. But no one was worried about the other three, he later told Cyclesport magazine. The two Belgians would not make it to the end, we were pretty sure. No one seemed to know much about Durand. He was not well known at all. Maybe we should have asked around. Normally, you can let a group get 15 minutes, maybe even a bit more if there's a headwind. But it got out of hand. But there was never a point when I thought we wouldn't catch them. By the time they had crossed over the Peterberg, Hattond, Neukoisberg, Tienberg, and the seventh climb of the day, the Eichenberg, the lead was still a healthy 11 minutes. In many races, Durand said, 20 minutes early on is not enough. This is the case in the Tour of Flanders, when it can come back very quickly once the big riders ramp things up. But with Kelly's Festina holding off and the other big teams cancelling each other out in a stalemate, the gap did not drop as expected. Roland was first to go by the wayside following the climbs of Volkegenberg and Voront before Maivish was distanced with over an hour left to ride. Then Durand had his famous wobble. With around 60 kilometres remaining, the Frenchman experienced a bad patch that lasted 20 kilometres, during which he had to hang on through gritted teeth. I think Jackie got the old hunger knock at one point and Wegmuller did all the work, slowed it up a little and waited for him to eat something and return, says Kelly. It's normal in these long classic races, especially when you're out in the breakaway, to have a little period when you feel not so good. You eat a bit and rest and you come back around and feel better. Wegmuller was that sort of guy. A real nice guy. Too good, sometimes. Too good, indeed. But the Swiss had a big decision to make. 
there were still five more climbs on the menu, including the Mur de Gerardsbergen and Bosberg combination ahead of the finale, and to go solo with 60 kilometers still remaining might have been tantamount to signing his own death warrant. In recent years, the Ronda has been won by solo breaks by the likes of Bettiol, Nicky Terpstra and Philippe Gilbert, the latter most memorably riding clear with 55 kilometers remaining. But Wegmuller had already been up the road for 150 kilometers, and so you can understand his reluctance to go alone so far from the finish in Meerbecker. Duron had been upfront about his plight, apologizing to his companion and telling him he couldn't pull. If he had, it would have also jeopardized the chance of the break, with the gap now coming down quickly. Pickering explains how Wegmuller gambled on giving Duron a break in the hope that he would recover and contribute a bit more towards the end of the race. Back then, Wegmuller was quite a big name and Duron was a relative unknown. Wegmuller's own calculation was, keep Duron, I could use him later on, because on a level playing field, he was the stronger rider. In bike races sometimes, you have to time your bad patches as well, and Duron was fortunate that his bad patch came with 60 kilometers to go. Duron came through his crisis, and the leading duo crossed the Leiberg, Mollenberg, and Berendries, entering Gerardsbergen with 18 kilometers to go, with a lead of four minutes. Having nursed Duron through his wobble and withstood the temptation of attacking on the Moor, Wegmuller was confident of dropping Duron with, in his own words, one of my bombs on the Bosberg. But when he tried, he was the one who exploded. His stomach was already aching from a glucose drink he had downed after the Moor, and Duron, who had by now found his legs, simply dropped him and rode away over the top. Wegmuller was unlucky that his bad patch came at the absolute crux of the race and not 50 kilometers earlier, says Pickering. Behind, defending champion Van Hoydonk and Italy's Maurizio Fondriest, who had won the rainbow stripes four years earlier in nearby Ronsa, led the chase. But they clearly hadn't banked on Duron's second wind, and the lone leader crested the summit of the Bosberg with two minutes still to play with. But with the team cars ordered to drop back to give the chasing riders some space, there was a lack of information for the front runners, which made for a tense finale. As Duron explained in 2011, I only started to think about victory about 10 kilometers from the finish after Wegmuller gave up on the Bosberg. The problem was that there was no information on the gaps behind. I knew that Van Hoydonk and Fondriest had attacked, but the details were contradictory, and I didn't even know if I had a minute, two minutes, or three. At the end of the race, when you have already been in the breakaway for 200 kilometers, you go much slower than guys like Van Hoydonk. But as Duron approached Meerbecker with around three kilometers remaining, the race director's car drew level with the lone leader and the window was wound down. Eddie Merckx, a double winner of the race he now ran, leaned out and said, young man, you have won the Tour of Flanders. This was when I really understood that it was in the bag, Duron said. I thought to myself, Jackie, you've pulled off the holdup of the century. Despite a small heart-in-mouth moment when almost clipping a fan who had strayed onto the road on the apex of the final bend onto the home straight, Duron held on for his historic win. Wearing a white lightweight helmet, he straightened his eye-catching Castorama kit, the one that looked like a pair of dungarees, and punched the air on crossing the line after 14 hills, six sections of cobbles, and more than six hours and 37 minutes in the saddle. His winning margin over Wegmuller was 48 seconds, while Van Hoydoink beat Fondriest in the sprint for third place a further 56 seconds back. 
Duran recalled the bemusement of the home fans who had flocked to the race to see a home favourite take the spoils but instead had been left underwhelmed by this unknown rider from the wrong side of the border. They were completely dazed to see me winning, said Duran. They would have accepted Wegmuller. He was a big ruler, and while not one of the favourites, he had outsider status and such things were not unheard of. But a Frenchman winning the Tour of Flanders? They were hoping for Van Hoydonk, but instead, they got me. The legend goes that some people in the Finnish area were so confused that Durand could hear them say, Jackie who? It was very much an anti-climax for the local fans, says Pickering. I understand that. It's their race and they're passionate about their race and riders. They want a Flemish rider to win the Tour of Flanders every year without fail. But I think it was brilliant. The race sums up bike racing as well as any victory by Museo or Van Hoydonk. It was pure cycling. Spare a thought for Durand's manager, Guimard. He might have had reason to celebrate Jean-Cyril Robin's victory in the GP Rennes some 600 kilometres away, but his decision to travel with his A-team to Brittany deprived the fated coach the chance to witness firsthand what was arguably Castorama's biggest and unlikeliest win. Unlikely, perhaps, but nonetheless deserved, says Pickering. The winner of a bike race is always right, without exception. The point of a bike race is to find out who wins the bike race, and the guy who wins crosses the line first. It's not the strongest guy. It's not the guy with the biggest lungs or leg muscles. It's the guy who works all those circumstances to get into a race-winning move. Duron's luck can be argued to be extremely bad judgment on the part of the so-called specialists and classics favourites. They simply gave that break too much road. They gave a four-rider move 22 minutes. In normal circumstances, this might have been okay, but it was a nice day, and the wind was much more favourable to the break than it might have been otherwise. Then there was the composition of the break. Obviously, Duron had a very big engine, but Thomas Wegmuller was an incredibly good rider and an absolute horse. So, you could say that Duron was lucky, but by the same token, the big favourites were stupid to let him and Wegmuller get such a gap on a day the weather wasn't too bad. So, what happened next? Lightning did not strike twice. As defending champion, Duron finished 72nd in the 1993 edition of the Ronda, as Johan Museu notched the first of his three wins. Duron was 72nd again seven years later before failing to finish three of his next four attempts. Such lowly finishes were replicated across other major classics, with the Frenchman never finishing higher than 20th in any of the 21 monuments he subsequently rode. He certainly wasn't a specialist, says Pickering. They weren't going to let him win twice, were they? Even Jackie Duran probably wouldn't have the cheek to imagine he could win for the second time. But that wasn't the end of his career at all. He went on to wear the Tour's yellow jersey. He won Paris Tours as well. He was a very good rider who picked his moments. But Flanders was lightning that was only ever going to strike once. Durand again pushed the needle on L'Equipe's Jackie meter when he attacked early in the French National Championships at Châtelleraux in 1993, resulting in victory ahead of his Castorama teammate Laurent Brochard. In another example of riding his luck, the combative Frenchman took the Tour's yellow jersey on the opening day of the 1995 race when he was one of the early starters in the prologue and a sudden deluge ruined the chances of the favourites once he had gone top of the leaderboard. Maybe Duron's real talent was picking his moments to shine because he certainly overachieved in some ways. And the Tour of Flanders and his yellow jersey were certainly two of those, says Pickering. Four years later, when Lance Armstrong won the first of his seven tours, 
Giron was the Lantern Rouge of the 1999 race, some three hours and 19 minutes behind the American. On one particularly eventful stage, Giron crashed, dislocated his shoulder, remounted, collided with a team car, then had his leg run over by another. Astonishingly, he still finished, winning the Tour's most combative rider in the process, and earning him yet more notoriety. For all his popularity in France, however, Giron's career was not free from controversy. He was banned for a month in 1996 after a doping infraction, while his name later appeared on the list of doping tests published by the French Senate in July 2013 that were collected during the 1998 Tour de France and found to be positive for EPO when retested in 2004. A fixture in the Gruppetto just as much as he was off the front of the race, Durand was also booted off the Tour in 2002 for holding onto a car during an ascent in the Pyrenees, something he was also suspected to have done the previous year. After retiring in 2005, Giron followed the tour as a representative of the supermarket chain Champion before landing a role as a television commentator for Eurosport. Still a firm fixture on the tour, he enjoyed a few words last year with his friend and Eurosport colleague Bradley Wiggins. Wiggo told viewers, in his own inimitable way from the back of a motorcycle, that the breakaway guy used to be his idol, recalling his partying lifestyle and describing him as a porn star. All in all, Jerome picked up 18 wins as a pro, including three on the Tour, two national titles and victories in Paris Tours and Trobro Lyon. But his most famous win will always remain his implausible triumph in Flanders. He remains the third and last Frenchman ever to have cracked Flanders. It might have been anticlimactic at the time, but Jerome's victory eventually resonated with the Flemish fans, who made him something of an honorary Flandrian as a result. Towards the end of his career, he rode for Belgian teams and at one point, when he was stopped for speeding, the Belgian policeman took one look at Duron and said, you won the Tour of Flanders in 92, before letting him drive on. I was young, but nothing I experienced afterwards could match what I experienced that day, Duron said in 2011. I had some great victories in my career, but whether it was Paris Tours, the French Nationals or stages of the Tour, I knew I was capable of winning them all. But with the Tour of Flanders, I really did the impossible. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, produced by Pete Burton. You can find Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can also find Pete, but only if you look really hard. Follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK and you can catch us on Instagram and Facebook. Plus, if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Next time out, we're heading back to 1921 when the Pellissier brothers rule Paris-Roubaix. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.